0: When I was an Army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today, uh, it's Shrove Tuesday, the day before Ash Wednesday, uh, a time to feast, and I hope you can today.
1: A reading from Deuteronomy. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You must diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his decrees and his statutes that he has commanded you. Do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord so that it may go well with you and so that you may go in and occupy the good land that the Lord swore to your ancestors to give you, thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your children ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord God our God has commanded you? <coughs> then you shall say to your children, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord displayed before our eyes great and awesome signs and wonders against Egypt against Pharaoh and all his household he brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land that he promised on oath to our ancestors then the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our lasting good so as to keep us alive as is now the case if we diligently observe this entire commandment before the Lord, our God, as he has commanded, we will be in the right. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you for reading that, Melanie. And we thank um, all who make morning prayer possible and thankful for all of you here today. Um, this reminder of the difficult days where they did put the god put god to the test uh, is the sp- what spurs moses to say this admonition to the people of god this is the same verse that jesus quotes when the devil takes him to a high mountain he quotes twice from the book of deuteronomy and this is one of the places he quotes You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is as if the people of God in the desert at Massah tested God, uh, put God on trial. And I can't think of a better description for modern society and modern thought than this very thing that we as enlightened modern humans have put God on trial and we have found God guilty. This has been long recognized as the, the problem, the theological problem of modernity is that we have put God on trial and God has come up guilty. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, God in the Dock, which is like the British way of saying God on the witness stand or God in the, not the witness stand, but the, in the seat of the accused or the defendant's seat. God is the defendant in the trial, and all of us are there to judge whether God is, is good and holy and right. And there's some reasons why people did it back then, and there's reasons why people do it today. Surely when we look at the vast size of the universe, we look at the wonders of creation, we look at the power of God, And we know the power of God and we hear the stories about it. And then we look at our own lives and our own situations and the things that we can't seem to get right. And the things that seem to go wrong in our world that uh, often seem to be unfixable. And we just wonder, why does God allow this kind of suffering on a big scale and on a small scale in our lives, which for us is a big scale? There's no such thing as minor surgery when it's on your body and so it is with troubles. It's not a minor thing when we go through really big adversities and trials. The strangest thing about human life is that most people, uh, if you live long enough, will have a similar set of struggles. Hum- the human struggle of adolescence or childhood is, is almost nearly universal, that we all come into the world fairly powerless and weak and helpless and easily um, mistreated and all the ways that um, we suffer as children, we, we like to idealize childhood as grownups, that they have it so easy with such innocence. And the truth is, it's hard being a kid. Um, it's hard being a teenager. It's hard being in your 20s. It's hard being in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and on and on. Each of those decades or eras of life are, are challenging. They have really significant challenges in them that um, when we experience them, we experience them for the first time. Even though we kind of know that other people have had troubles and trials and struggles in the past, when we go through them, they really do hit us as if we were the first person on the planet to ever have troubles. And maybe I'm just speaking from my own perspective, but I feel like that's also a universal thing as well. And we look at the overwhelming enormity Of life and the difficulty of it, it's easy to say, where are you, God? Where were you when this happened? Where were you when this happened? Where where were you when all that stuff fell apart? And so we put God on trial. And it seems like a thing that lots of people have done in the past and people are doing today. But the answer to God on trial, the problem with God being on trial is now God is the victim and God is not that powerful anymore. And when we put God on trial, we find that um, even though in our anger that may happen and who can judge us for that, uh, that ultimately God becomes very weak and not very strong in our lives. And that is what happened to the people of God at Massa. Um, and so the way out of that, the way to deal with that the way to still keep a relationship with God in spite of this overwhelming desire to put God on trial is to keep God's commandments. Um, The commandments of God are not meant to be a burden on anyone. This was the case back in the day when, um, when the commandments were written, and it's the case today. The Ten Commandments do form a framework for orderly life and community, worship. Uh, that's the first couple about how our relationship with God. And the second are about our relationship with other people. If we truly love our neighbor as ourself, we will not do all those things to our neighbor. And, and this, is the, this is the invitation that God gives to God's people these 3,000 plus years ago. And the same invitation is today. And it's really how we tell the story. We tell the story of the commandments to our children and to those who come after us. Whether we have children or not, biologically, we all are older than somebody. And we have this responsibility to, to answer these questions. And you know, the, the, the answer that is to be given by the parent to the child in this text in Deuteronomy is not, I told you so. This is the go-to answer of parents for generations. Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do that? I told you so. Some parenting advice has, is pretty good and some maybe isn't. But um, I remember hearing some, someone reflect on this and saying, you know, when your kids ask why, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to go there? Why do? Um, it's good to explain it. And if you can't explain it to your kids, if you can't give them a good reason, Maybe there isn't one. Maybe that's kind of a good measure of life. If you can't explain why you're doing something to your kid or a child, maybe it's not that great of a thing to do. Talk about a radical shift in the way we think. Um, We do a lot of things that are fairly unexplainable to children. And this is what is to be explained. Not God is really strong and mean and scary and not that we... We have to do all these things because God will smite us or bite us or whatever it is. But ultimately, the story is told to these children. We were slaves in Egypt. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. The, the reason for keeping the commandments is not that God is either good or bad. It is because God saved them. And whenever we reflect on our own life in Christ, our own salvation, our own walk as a Christian, ultimately is our salvation that we must fixate on. Now, for some people living in the time of Deuteronomy and and beyond, and even today, um, when life is kind of good, it's hard to remember that we were rescued. It's hard to remember that we were enslaved in Egypt. It's hard to remember that We needed someone to save us, and yet ultimately, this is what God has done, and we can never forget it. The season of Lent that we are about to begin tomorrow is a real time of reflection on repentance, but also reflection on what Jesus has done for us. This is not a a way to somehow become good enough for God, that God will finally love us if we're good enough, if we do enough good things or Fast enough or deprive ourselves of happiness enough. Ultimately, it is a time to refocus on our salvation, the deliverance from Egypt, and the new exodus that the people of God now have, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That through his death, uh, he saves us from this uh, enslavement to sin, to death, and to fear. This is the liberation we have in the revolution of Jesus' death, his work of liberation in our lives. And so whenever we worry about the commandments or worry about putting God to the test or worrying about all the enormities of life, we return to the same essential story, the story of death and resurrection, the story of the futility of life without God, the story of the futility of life without love. Ultimately, Jesus shows us that God is love. And that love is very personal. It is sacrificial love. It is love that goes all the way to death. And it is love that raises him from the dead. This power of love is the love that can live inside of you. The love that can live and animate you and give you purpose and meaning and truth and joy and contentment and happiness. And all the fruits of the Spirit can well up inside you and your life can be a gift to the world. You can give yourself away because the gift is the love of God, and that gift comes from God, and that well is so deep you can never get to the bottom of it. The love of God is a bottomless well. It goes down forever, and it goes into the heart of God, which is the heart of the universe that beats with love for you and for me. And so that is the focus of keeping commandments. It's love love that saves, love that rescues, love that delivers, love that frees and liberates. Amen. And on February 20th, the church remembers Frederick Douglass. He was born enslaved in 1818, so long before the Civil War, and was separated from his mother at the age of eight and given to a new owner. Uh, I currently have an eight-year-old child, and I can't imagine Uh, what that was like. I don't want to imagine it, but we have to, to understand his story. His new owner, Thomas Auld, um, was the one he was given to, um, and also to Hugh and Sophia Auld, Thomas's brother-in-law. Sophia attempted to teach Frederick Douglass to read along with her son, but her husband put a stop to this, claiming that it would forever unfit him to be a slave, quote. He learned to read in secret, earning small amounts of money when he could and paying neighbors to teach him how to read. One of the, one of the fascinating things of his life and, and story is that um, his, his uh, master, his enslaver, his kidnapper, Thomas Ald, was a Christian, a pretty nominal Christian, Slaveholder in Maryland, who one day went to a Methodist camp meeting, similar to the ones that are happening at Asbury Seminary. And the enslaved people, like Frederick Douglass, he was a young kid at the time, or young man, uh, had to sit in a special section in the back, it was an outdoor assembly. And you could see the altar where they would do an altar call where people would come down to pray And Frederick witnessed Thomas Auld coming down the altar for the altar call at the revival. And he watched his master weeping and weeping and weeping over his sins. And he had a conversion experience, a reconversion experience, a new awakening of the Holy Spirit in his life. And they went home. And from that day on, Thomas Auld only only beat his slaves on, on weekdays, not on Sunday. He only beat them during the week and did not beat them anymore on Sundays. And that was his part of his conversion experience and revival. So I'm saying that in a kind of a skeptical tone. I hope you can hear that, that for Frederick to witness this and to have his own spirit moved by the revival and say, here, I feel this seed of liberation planted in me and My master, Thomas Auld, feels it too. And he goes forward and weeps and weeps. And and then nothing really changes, ultimately. This outward, I won't beat my slaves on Sunday, being the outcome when it came to Frederick. We don't really know what goes on in people's hearts, but certainly we can see what happens with their whips. And that is what Frederick Douglass witnessed, this hypocrisy of the white Christian church of his day. Um, In 1838, Frederick Bailey, as he was then known, he wasn't known as Frederick Douglass yet, escaped uh, enslavement. He escaped living in Maryland, gave him an opportunity to get across the border. Of course, there was the laws that said an escaped slave could be forcibly captured and taken back to face severe punishment. Um, And yet he risked his life to do that at the age of 14. I believe he escaped on a ship for a little bit and got um, to um, to Philadelphia um, his um, his his conversion his own conversion experience that happened in the AME Church the African Methodist Episcopal Church the AME Church did have its roots in the Episcopal Church but it was not a direct um, line all Methodist churches at the time were called Methodist Episcopal churches because they had bishops Um, Episcopal means bishop but he said later those songs that he learned in that church still follow me to deepen my hatred of slavery and to quicken my sympathies for my brethren in bonds he was an outstanding orator. he went on a speaking crusade through the northern states sponsored by the American Anti-Slavery Society In 1845 he went to England on a speaking tour and his friends in America Um, worked really hard to raise enough money to buy out his master's legal claim to him so he could return to the United States in safety. Even though you escaped slavery, you were still in the United States. And uh, even though states had different laws about slavery and what they would tolerate, all of them agreed that it was legal to own slaves, to own people. And so they raised the money to buy out his his enslavement contract from his master, and um, that was the reality of Frederick Doug's, Douglass's life. He lived in constant fear that a gang would come in the middle of the night and take him away and, and sell him back. He worked in, in uh, moved further and further north throughout his life um, to get away from the border where gangs could come and capture him. Um, he was in New York and began editing a pro-abolition journal, The North Star, named after the fleeing slaves' nighttime guide. They would follow The North Star to what they considered to be freedom, which was more free than the enslavement of the South, but still held legal consequences for escaped slaves. Douglas was highly critical of churches that did not disassociate themselves from slavery. Challenging those churches, he quoted Jesus, denunciation of the Pharisees. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, from Matthew chapter 23. Um, It was during this time that uh, he was part of a, a slavery abolition speaking movement where they would go and try to speak for the political change that was necessary to free enslaved people. They were trying to get enough congressmen, senators, and presidents to be elected so that uh, we could vote slavery out. Of, of And there was a good movement that was sort of gaining ground, and as people saw the institution of slavery failing and faltering and ending on its own accord, or maybe politically. But it was when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed where the North, the whole country, agreed that anyone could capture an escaped enslaved person and ship them back to the South, um, without any legal consequences. So legalized kidnapping, basically. Um, when those laws were passed and re- enforced and reinforced, Frederick Douglass switched his, um, his, what he believed to be true and right. He switched from a political abolition of slavery to a violent um, overthrow of the enslavers, um, feeling that that was the only way to deliver his people from the bonds of slavery. It is this movement that led to the, to the really to the Civil War, and abolitionists saying, "It's time to uh, free our brethren and our sisters and siblings um, any way we can, um, whether and not just wait for the right votes to come in." Uh, this is this was a pivotal moment in his moral um, journey, and he justified it based on uh, the words of Holy Scripture, um, the the teachings of of Jesus about. Um, the oppression and what, what we need to do to get out of it. Um, also, from other writings of, the, of uh, Holy Scripture, his theological defense of this was um, is well-documented. I encourage you to read what he said about this. He was a strong advocate of racial integration. He disavowed black se- separatism and wanted to be counted as equal among his white peers. When he met Abraham Lincoln in the White House, he noted that the president treated him as kindly as a kindred spirit, without one trace of condescension. He lived through the Civil War and died in 1895. Um, Always a preacher, always a teacher, always a writer, always a champion for liberty. And now we look back at his life and say, you know, he was right. And I think it's always good to say, what are the things that many years from now we will look back and say, I wish I had been on the right side of that one. Almighty God, we bless your name for the witness of Frederick Douglass, whose impassioned and reasonable speech move the hearts of people to a deeper obedience to Christ. Strengthen us also to speak on behalf of those in captivity and tribulation, continuing in the way of Jesus Christ, our liberator, who with you and the Holy Spirit dwells in glory everlasting. Amen. Colic for peace, O O God, the author of peace and lover of concord, to know you as eternal life